Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Elgin, Illinois, is Brian Smith, PhD. And we're going to be talking about Brian and his daughter's book, Mary Griffin, uh, Positive Influence, Be the I in Team. Good day to you. How are you doing? Oh, good day to you too, Greg. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with our listening audience about a really important topic. And it's something that I think, especially people in middle management, upper management need to know more about. Um, it certainly is something that I would say is um, can change the whole trajectory of an organization. Uh, and the work that you and your team do is just it's it's important. Um, not everybody goes into doing this, but I'm going to let people know a bit about IA Business Advisors. Um, Brian can be reached at iabusinessadvisors.com. Um, this work, because he's just in Illinois, doesn't mean he can't do it remotely. He can. A lot of this work is, I'm sure they're doing remotely. But since 1988, Brian has helped over 19,000 business owners and managers on all seven continents. Yes, he says Antarctica too. Uh, coming from companies of all sizes, he's helped them make decisions to help them grow personally and as an organization. He's a lifelong learner. He has a PhD in organizational psychology, master's degree in management information systems, master's degree in occupational safety, and a bachelor's degree in accounting, and is a certified Six Sigma Master Black Belt Consultant and he also has a Microsoft MCSE and has completed many certification courses supporting his work as an advisor. Well, Brian, it's a pleasure having you on, and we're going to speak about positive influence today. And, you know, I found it interesting, you know, <laughs> it, it, who, who wrote the introduction was Renee, your wife, to the book, and said you, at the time you owned an auto body shop and you fired her and I really liked your story. And then, oh, by the way, and then wink, wink, uh, you guys got married <laughs> um, <laughs> and had children. But she, you asked your wife to write the foreword of this book and you wrote, you co-wrote the book uh, with your daughter, Mary. And your wife mentioned that during that time that she was pre pregnant, she was reading self-help books. And when she was pregnant and and the advice she received was pretend that a video camera was recording her actions. She read that somewhere. And I went to and got a master's degree in spiritual psychology. And we always used to say, hey, if there was a camera following you all day long, would you, would you what was recorded, would you like it? Would you like it? Meaning how you were treating other people and also how you kind of treated yourself. Because I think if most of us had a video camera run on us during the day, we may not like some of the things we say, uh, we also might not like uh, how we feel at the end of the day, personally as well. And I think this is great advice. Why do you believe this is a good tool to teach people about being a positive influence? Well, I think a lot of us uh, find ourselves in what we like to call comfortable focus of our lives. Um, we're in our lane, we're focused on whatever our area of influence is, and we forget that our actions, our words have influenced themselves. And so when when we think like this, as you just pointed out, and, and 
we surround ourselves with the idea that we're being filmed, it makes us be a little bit more in the present, a little bit more in the moment, a little bit more understanding of our current influence and how we're acting. And when we slow down and do that, we have the best opportunity for one, to be our best selves, but for two, to have a positive influence. And then we have our best opportunity to be not just positive, but we're not afraid to hold ourselves accountable for the actions that we take because we were deliberate about them. Yeah. You know, in this case, and in businesses, you see this a lot in we're like actors on a stage in a play and we've been given roles, right? And it's interesting, you know, when the camera is on, depending on if the ego is high or something's happening, we see people that like to kind of take charge. We see others that maybe aren't so happy with that uh, because of the way they do it. And you state that we diminish the value of our influence when we ignore the influence we have on others. Um, and focus solely on the influence that we can have on ourselves. Why is it so important to remember the influence we're having on ourselves to transmute elements of our personality for the better? Well, everything we do has influence. So if we're not our best selves first, how could we ever want to be or ever be the best self for others? And when we're reflective and, and uh, give ourselves that level of attention, we set ourselves up to be that best influence. And we don't have to look over our shoulder at what the ripple effect might be of what we're saying and doing because we were deliberate about it. We planned those actions. We planned those words. Uh, we slowed ourselves down and we didn't let environmental urgency or, re, or immediate reactions uh, overtake us. And when we're our best selves, we give ourselves the opportunity to have our best individual positive influence. Yeah, it was interesting. Renee wrote in there that she had two bits of advice from those personal growth books. And one of them was to take a deep breath. And the other one was to look at the, at the as if a camera was following you, right? And she said that, that the camera following you was more important, she thought, than taking the, the deep breath, but they're all very important. And that other one about taking a deep breath before or if we're charged emotionally um, is a really important one. And if you would speak with the audience about the importance of communications, because you know this is a big area. I've had lots of people on here that have written books about communications. Um, the 80-80 marriage, communications in marriage, the, the communications inside businesses, um, and how we can improve our communications to have a positive impact on others within our teams, right? So, you know, there's so many people that work in a team, whether it's a development team at Adobe or Microsoft or Google or wherever it might be. And I know my son is a, is a runs a team of 34 people at Adobe. And he says that, it, Dad, it can be quite challenging because I'm the one that has to kind of, how you want to call it, keep the peace, uh, but modulate what's going on inside of there. Um, also, what are some of the key takeaways from this chapter? Each one of your chapters has takeaways. Actually, it's not even chapters. You'll write a section, and then, and then you'll have right after that key takeaways from that section. And I think I 
I, I would just let our listeners know that that's a great way to have designed a book uh, because you can actually just go to the takeaways if you want. You probably get just as much out of the book. So what are some of those takeaways on communications that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah, I think the number one takeaway that uh, I've been talking about a lot recently, and we talk about it in the book, and this may not be specific to that section, but context matters in all of our communication. And one of the things that we like to teach is smart communication, being specific when you're communicating to somebody, setting uh, boundaries, measuring. So when we set boundaries in communications, we outline for what the boundaries might be of the conversation, what we're asking for, uh, what our expectation is in return. Um, also, understanding attainability and uh, reality of, of the context of the conversation. And is this the right time to have conversations? When we think in a smart way about how we communicate, it gives us that pause, that deep breath that, that we just talked about. It allows us to think about the contextuality of that conversation and what we want out of it. Am I trying to delegate? Am I trying to get information back? Am I trying to give direction or, or, or give mandates? And when we approach communication in this smart way, it gives us that slowdown opportunity. It gives us that in the moment opportunity. It gives us clarity. Um, and it really sets a foundation for two to many people to have open, honest, and deliberate conversations about whatever topic it is and whatever area of influence that we stay in. And I think that's the biggest takeaway I've been trying to focus on most recently, which, by the way, is in the book. I've just We're just stating it a little differently here. Well, you know, when you work inside companies, you've been, you use the DISC and the Kolb assessments and you call it your biz vision, and it helps you to analyze and understand people better. I think many people have taken the Myers-Briggs, um, they can say they're an ENFT or whatever the, the letters are. Again, I don't remember them all, but you do, I'm sure, um, or the Kolb or the DISC. Speak with us about how important these assessments are in your ability as a company uh, to actually help organizations have stronger teams, more efficient, greater levels of productivity, greater levels of creativity as a result of it. Because when you get the right people on a team, it just kind of hums. Yeah, so we never use the assessments to choose people. We always use the assessments to identify communication management and behavior recommendations between different people. So when, when we do an assessment in an organization, it's to understand those people that you interact with on a regular basis and understand where they are in that Colb, Colby or DISC uh, assessment and how different types of communication uh, tactics can be used when you're with that person. And when you understand what those assessments are, you create opportunities to communicate that are better. You create opportunities to communicate that flow better. Um, you might have somebody that, un, that, that communicates better in the written word than in the verbal word. And if you don't know these things, if you don't know that they uh, assimilate information better in those ways, and 
that they they require more details than other people do or less details than other people do, or that they are not quick to uh, respond or or a quick start kind of a person, that they're going to require some more thoughtful understanding of what's going on. And if if we approach those people in our areas of influence opposite of what they are inherently, what they inherently need or what they uh, inherently are used to, we set ourselves up for disruption and failure before we even got started. So we use those assessments to develop communication tactics within teams so that whatever's going on in the area of improvement that they're dealing in, whatever tactics that are being done, whatever strategies that are being employed are being done with a complete understanding of the team and how that team uh, comes together in this mix of humans, different behaviors, different backgrounds, different technical aspects, and how we can make it work together and move together uh, in the same direction. Yeah, not everybody out there has a degree in organizational psychology like you or me in psychology, right? So I think uh, for for many of us, you can kind of intuit things, right? But I know for some people, they don't intuit things that way. Um, and oftentimes when you do, I know for me, I've gotten so good at it, or at least I think I have, that that I've intuited right on who might work better together. Um, and I think you get a sense for that, which kind of leads me to, you know, leaders, influential leaders. Um, And you said in the book, you mentioned that influential leaders can sometimes feel like they are above everyone else. And you say that you don't mean that, that they think they are better than everyone else. You state that when a leader takes the high road, it is always the right road. Um, What are some of the attributes that a leader needs to take the high road and be successful at it? And then what are some of the high road takeaways uh, from the book? So taking the high road means, um, you know, doing the right thing really is what the high road is to us. It's a, it's a analogy of, uh, getting above the fray, getting above the noise, um, getting above, uh, the chaos that can happen in day to day. And as leaders, when we set rules and we set policies and we set procedures and we set precedent, um, uh, if we are inconsistent, that's not the high road. Taking the inconsistent way off of the high road takes us back down into the chaos. Um, uh, one of the stories we have about uh, being a leader and taking the high road is when I go and visit some of the factories that we have and I walk into an area of influence um, uh, that somebody else has, like our warehouse manager. I might own the company, but the minute that I walk into that person's area of influence, I am subordinate to them. It is their world. They control that warehouse. I have delegated to them the responsibility of managing that warehouse. And if I walked in there and acted like I didn't have to listen to them or I was above them or better them, I diminish their value as the leader of that warehouse. I diminish the value of the policies and procedures put in place for that warehouse. And I set a horrible precedent for the rest of the company or anybody else that might observe that uh, that behavior. That's what we mean uh, by the takeaways. And 
uh, or, or by taking the high road. And, and the well, takeaways you're, you're are kind just, of talking about the green leaf servant leadership model because the reality is is you and I can imagine you're talking about you in your own warehouse, right? Um, you know, the reality is you are looking at it. You're there to serve the people. The people aren't there to serve you. Um, in essence, precisely. Yeah. Oh, precisely. precisely actually, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, yeah. uh, I never, and and we teach this. Nobody in our organization is hired to serve somebody else. I have an assistant, but she's not there to serve me. She's there to be my peer. She's there to protect me. I'm there to protect her. We work shoulder to shoulder all day. Just because she's called my assistant doesn't mean that she's there to serve me. If I ever began to treat her that way, I, I would hope that not just her, but that the people around us would call us out on that and say that is just improper, that that is inconsistent. You got off the high road, Brian, you're back down in the in, in the chaos. Yeah, and it's more of a flat model. It isn't a hierarchical model. I mean, what you're talking about is a flat model of an organization which works. A lot of people question whether or not that works. Um, and one of the things that in this process, when you have an organization the way you run it, um, is this power of accountability and you living up to your word. Um what in your estimation are some of the bad habits that get in the way of someone being accountable and trustworthy um, as well? Speak about the takeaways again, that you give in the book about accountability. I mean, look, we look at accountability in your case, accountability equals autonomy um, because you've given people like your assistant complete autonomy to do what she needs to do. With basically, I'm not saying without your direction, you guys co-create together. You come together in a space of love and understanding, and you co-create whatever it is you need to create to serve your clients. Um, and I get that about you. And I'm wondering, because this, there's a lot of energy around this word accountability. You know, I just spoke with one of my business clients yesterday on the phone, and he was saying, hey, this uh, general manager... I'm going to let him go in September if he can't be more accountable. And I said, well, I think you have a guy there who's really the one of the best general managers you've ever had. But the way you're looking at it, Steve, your perspective is those, he says, well, he can't allow, he doesn't have the strength to have conversations with the other people in the organization of which there's about 35 to actually have them be accountable. And I say it to him, that's because you're not supporting him. <laughs> so how about that one? I have my own example from yesterday. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, as you just pointed out, holding people accountable um, means so many different things to so many different people. Some people think that accountability is discipline. That that's how you hold them accountable. For us, um, we make people revisit that which they're being held accountable for. And if they're being held accountable, it means they've done something contrary to what was expected and, uh, and that they understood that expectation. You can't hold somebody accountable for something if they didn't first understand what it is they were supposed to do. That takes us back to that whole smart communication model we talked about. And so accountability goes to root cause for us and understanding uh, as an organization in a, in a flat 
uh, hierarchy that we have, what our expectations are. And if we don't understand those, um, then you need to ask. And if you don't ask, you're held accountable for that. We take you on a journey through questions and answer, through dialogue, through smart communication to get you to understand where you missed being smart. So accountability to us is a process of understanding smart. And in organizations, you have to find your own way of holding people accountable in a positive way so that they realize what their areas of expectation are and so that they can act consistently within that area of expectation and that area of influence. So accountability for us is built for our clients based on their environments, whatever that is, whatever area of influence they are. Um, it's teaching their people, whoever those people are, what that means, and giving them the authority and the power to challenge uh, uh, the process. If somebody's being held accountable for something that uh they didn't have an expectation of the next question is, is why did they not have that expectation? What wasn't smart about this? And they follow the smart protocol person to person, shoulder to shoulder, because it's flat. It actually works really well because people help each other. The, the question that you hear in our office, if something goes wrong, Greg, is what wasn't smart about this? The first thing people do is take a step back and go, oh, I wasn't specific or I didn't have a measurement or you know, I never asked if this was attainable. I didn't ask you if you could get it done by next Tuesday. Um, um, I didn't ask if it was realistic for you to be in two places at one time. That was my expectation, but I didn't ask if that was realistic. Or I didn't ask you if this was a good time for your help. You know, it's going to that smart question and everybody asks the same question. What wasn't smart about that? Yeah, and, you know, and that's just a matter of training yourself to look for those things, right, and making sure that they're top of mind instead of the bottom when you leave the meeting, and that there's agreement on those smart elements when you leave a meeting, like, hey, you got it, right? Oh, if I didn't hear you clearly, say, let me repeat what you said, okay? This is what I heard you say. That's a common way for people to actually get a greater level and understanding of communications. Is this what you said? No, that's not what I said. You didn't hear me right. This is what I said. And I think it takes a little more of that when you're working around these smart goals uh, so that you can get them clear or smart communications, but kind of pretty close to the same. And this brings me to, go ahead. You're no, I was going to say you are so spot on that it takes practice you know uh, yeah. accountability doesn't just happen overnight it takes practice it takes participation and it takes leadership through the organization and it takes trust it takes trust in a smart process or whatever you want to call it i don't care uh, what you call it but it takes trust uh and practice uh and that leads to the accountability and accountability comes from when your peers will lightly tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, we weren't really smart about this. Let's let's get smart. Yeah, and you talk about responsibility in the book. And I always broke responsibility down is my ability to respond, okay? In other words, if you're giving something that's out of someone's comfort zone, so far out of their reach that they can't do it, um, 
chances are you're probably going to have a failure uh, of them being able to respond. But if you're giving something to them in their comfort zone that, you know, maybe pushes them a little bit, but not so much, you know, it'd be like giving somebody uh, a big accounting project who's never done accounting, right? Uh, And saying, yeah, I got to have this spreadsheet done. They don't know how to do formulas. They don't know how to work in Excel. They don't know how to do any of that. You've got to walk before you can run to get there, right? So the single thing is, and I believe this, and I know you do because you must teach this, we're 100% accountable for, I should say accountable, we're 100% responsible for all of our own actions and where we are in life. First thing to remember, no one else is responsible. Don't go around blaming somebody else because you didn't get this or you didn't get that. Responsibility comes back to the finger pointing back to me, not out there, okay? So what are the top three failures of somebody responsible? You talk about them, uh, I should say, being probably irresponsible, but not understanding about what responsibility means. And and this, this dives into psychology really deep because people's people's understanding of responsibility and I'm not going to say that this is good, bad, or indefinite, just is across generational lines, right? I'm a baby boomer. I don't know what you are, but we got millennials. We got all kinds of people out there. And the way certain generations, I mean, if you look at the generation even before me, responsibility was a really big deal, right? Um, as we've moved through this, we see it a little bit differently, don't we? Um, what would you tell are the top three failures in your estimation that you see inside companies? Wow, I think first is um, uh, not communicating that you have a, some gap in understanding and, and just taking orders blindly and, and, and just going on and saying yes, being a yes man. Uh, um, not having context to what, what your area of responsibility is. Um, not understanding what your role is, not understanding what your mission is. And that can be individually as a single person or even your whole department of people. Um, Not understanding your market and your customer. These are all common issues that we face that uh, we walk into an organization and we see failure and it almost always goes back to lack of clarity lack of specifics, lack of measurables, lack of understanding of capability, giving people, as you said, it's one thing to push somebody uh, a little bit farther to do a little bit more or get out of their comfort zone. And it's another thing to say, um, you know, go pick me apples, but I'm going to drop you off in an orange tree, uh, an orange orchard. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, know, but that happens. It happens all the time, you know. so when we do that, in, in whatever level we're at in our organization, when we don't understand or set proper expectations, understand what's attainable from our team, what's attainable from that individual that we're speaking to, what's realistic and what's timely, whatever that means in that moment. When, when, when we just blindly give orders and set expectations without understanding these things, uh, we've lost it right there. Well, you know, I think some of the listeners out there might go, well, this is practical knowledge. It's practical common sense. It is in one sense, you would think, but because we see so many faux pas occur, 
in organizations, we see breakdowns in communication. We see people quit because there was a bad manager. We see turnover. We see all of these indicators, which all lead back to some of actually what you would think some pretty simple things that we're talking about here. Um, and that brings me to the positive influence BVI and team. You, you really explore the importance of building trust. And I think T with a capital T, trust, um, in relationships within a team. What are some of the strategies for building the big T trust, meaning I can really count on you, Brian, and establishing strong relationships with other teammates? Yeah, well, uh, top of mind is, of course, communication, uh, being honest. Um, it's okay to say I don't know. It's okay to say I need help. It's okay to say uh, I need uh, support. Um, you don't diminish your value when you share that you have a gap in your skill set or your understanding. You actually share, you put yourself out there, you make yourself vulnerable to a certain aspect, but you also allow that person to transfer something from themselves to you and you accept something from them to you. And that's investment, that's equity. When, when you are honest with people and you allow them to invest in you, mentor you, teach you, and you accept that from them, you focus and you understand it, and then you turn around and act consistently and accordingly to what you were taught, you're creating equity in that relationship, not just with that person, but with your area of influence, with your position, and with any other people who are... are influenced by your actions, your tasks, your words, your behavior. I think that is probably the number one thing that I could say to uh, the audience is um, invest, be honest and invest in those relationships. And don't be afraid to share that you have gaps and allow those gaps to be filled by those people that rely on you or that you're going to rely on. So important, so, so important in the context of, you know, working inside a business and coaching, right? Because the reality is, you know, you, in a sense, are doing these things, but you guys are coaching these individuals on a regular basis to become better. And I reflect on a recent interview I had with Marshall Goldsmith on his new book. And as Marshall was speaking with me, um, we got talking about regret, uh, things that people regret. And we got talking about something that I didn't know that he basically fundamentally has been using. And, you know, this may sound kind of strange, but expectation is suffering in the making, right? Now that's a Buddhist precept, but the reality is when you and I are sitting there saying, well, we had an expectation of this person and then they let us down because they didn't complete it. A lot of the challenge is with the expectations that you and I had. Now, I know that sounds so far out, but it's really not um, because we kind of set ourselves up for our own disappointments in life in many ways. And that comes down to the book highlights the significance of empathy and understanding. Uh, and when it comes to positive influence, how can individuals develop and demonstrate more empathy toward their team members? And this again comes along with that, 
that precept that I just talked about is that expectation is suffering in the making because, you know, are you going to be empathetic or are you going to be a bastard when that person doesn't match up to what you said? And what is going to be, are you going to use the carrot or are you going to use the stick? And I virtually say that it's probably better to use a banana cream pie uh, than it is to say, I'm going to demote you and take away some of your salary or whatever I'm going to do in the process. What would you say about that? The empathy? Yeah, well, uh, empathy is probably one of the best things that we could have as just humans in general. If there was more empathy in the world, we'd have less chaos over the last five years that we've seen in every aspect of our human lives, especially us Americans with our political issues and everything else. We just yeah. have lost that for some reason. But in the context of at work and what you just said, expectations not set uh, clearly and properly are we're setting ourselves up to, to, to be very yeah. disappointed as leaders. And empathy can be built uh part of what we talked about earlier colby and disc helps build empathy when we understand a person's uh basic psychological makeup and we know what that is ahead of time it helps us be empathetic to the struggles that they have in our work area of influence when we open ourselves up to human empathy and we hear that somebody had a failure because of an outside influence you know a child was sick or uh, a parent or an accident on the road, when we don't get overcome by that immediate urgency and we actually listen to that other person, and when you've already built trust and you know that person has invested in you and invested in the process, empathy falls out of that. Trust builds empathy. And when you start with a foundation, like we've talked about today, of positive influence and layering it up, providing context, providing that smart structure, listening to learn, focusing on people, being our best self for others. When we build that up, empathy is a byproduct. It becomes a byproduct. It doesn't become something that we have to work on. It becomes immediate. When somebody out here calls and says, uh, the dog ate my homework, I don't immediately say, oh, that's a bunch of BS. I trust them. I trust that, the, you know, for once in my life, the dog actually ate the homework. It wasn't just an excuse. And mm -hmm. I'm empathetic to them and I can give them a reaction that gives them the time to fix the gap that was created by not having the homework done or the work done or being prepared for it. And I can do that in a positive way and I can be a positive peer, a positive leader and a positive support person to them. Yeah, it it is something. And then, you know, you rejigger and have deep conversations about the fact that, you know, we can't allow that to continue inside this organization because uh, it's things like that, that um, kind of piss off our clients because they're expecting something from us that we didn't get done. And so now it, it's like a slippery slope. It's got to go like this, you know, now I'm going to have to make uh, uh, some kind of excuse <laughs> to, to tell the client, hey, we didn't get that done, whether it was a spreadsheet or this or that, a report, it doesn't matter. But part of the, the problem that we all face, and we've all faced this since the digital world 
has entered our lives and 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 to some point to a very large degree is distractions because the world is filled with these distractions and you state if we can better manage our distractions we'll have better retention and results i i agree um said lightly better managing distractions because now we're getting people so stressed out by all the things that they have to do because technology let's face it, has sped up all of our worlds. I mean, I come from an age when we didn't have to have immediate reactions. We weren't answering emails because they were expected within 10 minutes of getting an email, right? What are some of the ways that we can manage distractions and get rid of procrastination? Uh, That's the other word that came in there in your book, um, which results from our distractions. Because the distractions are the things, oh, I'm going to go play the video game, or I'm going to go answer some emails, or I'm going on Facebook, I'm going on LinkedIn, whatever it is, whatever the distraction might be, which then says, hey, I didn't get my work done because I was doing these other things that appeared to be more fun than what I had to do. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny you ask that question. I just finished uh, recording our new podcast and we were talking today. I was recording about focus and about uh, uh, immediate gratification and uh, distractions in particular. And some of the things we can do if we find, for example, if we find that we're distracted by our phones, um, you know, the easiest thing is, well, to turn it off. Um, but a lot of people uh, don't like that. So um, some of the things we teach is turn the screen down. One of the most distracting things that happens to us as humans now is the screen flashes. And the first thing we want to do is pick it up and answer that text or answer that email. Uh, You have to be deliberate. Uh, You have to be deliberate about distracting the distractions. You have to set your environment up to provide distractions of those distractions. Um, there's a sign on my door right now that says, do not disturb. I'm in in this meeting with you, Greg, and with your audience. Um, that stops people from distracting me. Um, all of the things in my office are turned off. Uh, there's no phones available to distract me. There's no outside influences that can get in the way. You have to deliberately set those things up. You have to slow down first and understand what distracts you is it the video game is it the dog is it the child is it the phone is it the email and once you identify that you can be deliberate about setting up your environment uh, to support whatever level of focus you want to have and it requires that level of understanding of self understanding of your environment and understanding of your ability to actually focus uh, a lot of us, as you may know or not know this, my dissertation was technology-induced attention deficit disorder, and I wrote it in 1999, before we had all of these distractions. But as you know, in the 90s, we were already starting to see how technology was distracting us. We went from 14-4 baud modem connections to instant access in a number of years. Uh, We went from email to text messages in a short number of years. We have raised our level of expectation of getting replies, giving replies, and just being human with each other to a point where 
life is a distraction. It's noise constantly. You have to set those environments up to slow them down. And you have to be very deliberate about them. Yeah. I haven't made my t-shirt yet, but I keep telling my wife I am many years ago. I was in San Francisco with my son and I made an observation, which you've made this as well. But, you know, I say downhead syndrome. Uh, the, the reality <laughs> is, is that I'm going to create a t-shirt with a person like looking at their phone, walking into a pole um, because they have downhead or walking off of a cliff. And where in the world did we ever see that people fell off the Grand Canyon from taking a selfie, right? It's like, come on. I mean, this is, and I'm not saying this happens a lot, but when it does happen, it just tells you how distracted somebody has to be to actually kill themselves in the process of taking a selfie. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a bit ridiculous, but it it, it is kind of where the world is and the results uh, can actually be uh, life-threatening. Um, Whoa. Huh? You know, Greg, I, I'll share with you that story uh, at the Grand Canyon might seem exceptional to people, but we in our area of influence and in one of our companies know of a story where a gentleman walked off a roof because he was texting on his phone and he literally walked right off the roof. Um, and these things are happening mm -hmm. more. The media is not focused on this stuff. These types of distraction, these comfortable focuses we get in with our phones or whatever area of influence we're in are happening more and more because of uh, our propensity to get into our own heads and get too laser focused on one thing. Yeah, I, I interviewed uh, Adam Ghazali and wrote The Distracted Mind, and he's the neuroscientist at San Francisco State University. And uh, fascinating interview, but more importantly, um, in, in a, from a neuroplasticity standpoint, or the way the brain's right brain, left brain hemisphere, your frontal cortex, when you're imbalanced in that way, what's happening is it's misfiring. And the only way to reek to, to get it firing back equal, because the brain looks for um, an equal firing between both hemispheres, to be honest with you. One side, you're coming from your emotional side. The other side, you're coming from your logical side. Um, and most people in those cases, you'll find are highly emotional at the time. I bet you if you looked at it uh, while they were trying to do the text, something either agitated them or made them really just exuberant with oxytoxins that came through their system because someone sent them a surf video or a skiing video or whatever it was, right? But to actually retrain the brain is, is more complicated than we think when it comes to this because we've become so, I'm going to call it dependent. We at least think we're dependent on those things. So just for my listeners, hey, look, there's a lot you can learn about how to rewire and refire your brain. Um, there's a lot you can learn about being a positive influence. And with that, Brent, I'm going to wrap this up. The book is filled with just tons of takeaways. Uh, if you were to leave the listener with some sound advice about becoming a more positive influence, both to themselves and the people they work around, what key takeaways would you want to emphasize and or what do you want them to remember from the book? If there was two or three things. Yeah, I think uh, the number one thing we like people to remember is that they matter, that they have influence, um, that they're important. And so uh, understand that you, your influence is your responsibility. 
take ownership for it, slow down, be as specific, measurable about what it is you do, what it is you expect people to do um, when you get or give uh, instruction. And when you slow yourself down and understand that you matter and that you have influence, um, you can be more deliberate, you can be more positive, you can take better ownership for yourself and those around you. And you can probably look in the mirror and be happier with yourself and with where you're at. And the book is about understanding these things and about allowing you and taking you on this journey to be your best self for you so you can be your best self for others in the most positive aspect that you can. Well, it's an excellent book. And for my listeners, here's the book, Positive Influence. Um, B, the I in team, uh, co-authored, it was Brian Smith and his daughter, Mary Griffin, who wrote this book. Kudos out to Mary as well, because I'm sure a lot of it was Mary's work as well as yours. Um, Also, for my listeners uh, to learn more about the DISC reports, the Cove reports, his business vision, what he's doing, just visit iabusinessadvisors.com that's iabusinessadvisors.com there you can reach brian i was complimenting him before we came on the air about the cool pictures it's worth going to the website just to see those cool graphic artist images of all the people that work with brian um and and created this company um that's trying to help organizations um communicate better focus better be more intentional all the things that you need to do to drive more profitability, less turnover, uh, greater rates of creativity uh, and innovation with inside of an organization. Brian's your guy. Uh, reach out to him if you would. Brian, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. Thanks for taking the time with us today to talk with us about your new book and also to talk with us about how you actually approach businesses and helping them get where they need to go. Greg, thank you so much for having me. It's just been really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.